From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. There's a saying that is, you know, lead from the front, and, and I like that, but I actually think you set the example from the front and you lead from the middle. Right. So you have to hold yourself, you have to do all those things that make it, but you then come back to the middle to like gather people's insights and perspectives. You'll see examples of that over and over again in sales and marketing, which I love. Hi folks, Justin Schreiber here. About 20 years ago, while I was working at Siebel Systems, I got a call from my boss who told me that I needed to get plugged into a pitch we were making out at Microsoft. It was a really big deal, and I'd be lying if I said it didn't have me a little rattled. I was working out in the Seattle office at the time, and given the magnitude of the opportunity, HQ sent up some of their best from San Francisco. That was the first time I saw Dan Streetman, now CEO of Tibco, in action. During an internal prep meeting, he laid out the plan and got everyone aligned with military precision. Well, it turns out Dan understood the definition of military precision better than most. He'd served as a ranger and an officer in the US Army. You'd think that a guy that's had Dan's success has everything figured out. But what I love about Dan is he's really quick to ask for feedback and he's just as fast to apply it. It's one of the reasons he's seen so many wins in his career. In today's episode, Dan talks about second chances, how he's built a customer-centric organization at Tibco, and what the military has taught him about leading through times of uncertainty. Let's jump into the conversation. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks very much, Justin. Great to be here. So Dan, I always like to come back to those seminal moments in life when really you just have a chance to take a step back and, and take inventory. I know that you were going through a bit of a crisis at one point and it had a very interesting life coach that came in at just the right moment and got you pointed at the right direction. Let me play a, a clip actually of that moment. And just to set this up for the audience, of all people, Conan O'Brien Zoom bombed one of your meetings and uh, shared some choice words with you. So let's let's play that and then we'd love to get get your reaction to this. What happened to you, Dan? Remember? Remember when you were a roadie in a band and you had dreams? <laughs> I look too. Dan, you were great for the company early on when you were hungry. But now you're so busy putting the Tibco name on furniture, you forgot what it is we do. I want to customize information exchanges by using APIs over the public web in place of proprietary EDI networks. Has anyone thought of that? And it just keeps getting better and better. Guys, Tibco was a dream to me, and I think it could be your dream too. Can I at least get a Tibco sweatshirt out of this? What What was going on there in that moment of craziness? Well, the best part about that is Cody did an exceptional job reading, you know, prescription for what we should do off of our own website. So that was the best part of that. We had an inside connection to his team, and uh, this was at the height of some initial concerns over Zoom security. So the team, you know, was one of our uh, regional account executive teams, a great group of individuals, and uh, they were told they're going to have a special guest. Uh, the special guest was not me, after all, but it was Conan O'Brien, and he did a phenomenal job. He brought a lot of levity. 
and I didn't think that would be the one way that I would be be famous. But uh, we do have, as you can see behind me, a Conan O'Brien T-shirt with the Tibco logo. So everything uh, was was a lot of fun about that. And as I said, you know, my ego was a small price to pay for a little bit of publicity and a lot of team morale. This is the legends of sales and marketing. I have to say that is the greatest publicity PR stunt of all time. Congratulations. The the trophy is in the mail. Yeah, the, the, the calculations on that are pretty good. Our, our website hits went up really exponentially. Of course, it took a lot more work on our business development team to go qualify those leads, but we got a lot of good interest. <laughs> all right. Well, we've got a ton of great material. I want to call out, first of all, Dan, you are a proud veteran. I want to thank you for your service first and foremost. We're going to be playing this episode as part of season two, but we're actually recording it on Veterans Day. And I wanted to just pause for a moment and and see if you had any thoughts you wanted to share on that front. Well, first, right, on on behalf of, uh, you know, women and men who've done so much more uh, to protect our values and our ideals and and keep us safe, I I thank you for that sentiment. I think it's important to pause and thank all those who serve. and it's clearly a, a good aspect to understand, right? The things that drive me as a leader in sales and marketing as well is this concept of, right? The greatest goals are those you serve above yourself. You know, we're in sales and marketing. We absolutely measure, right? By the dollars we bring in. Uh, but we also measure by the impact we can make in organizations around us. And really, in essence, uh, you know, that initial duty that I had in the military helped me prepare for a lot of the things that helped me as a leader in sales and marketing and as a CEO now at Tibco. Well, let's talk a little bit about TIBCO. For those that are not familiar with TIBCO, can you give us the elevator pitch? And then I'd love to hear how you've built this integrated strategy around the company. Sure. Well, so in essence, what we do um, is help organizations harness the power of real-time data to make faster, smarter decisions. You know, that's it in a nutshell. Now we do that by seamlessly connecting all their sources of data. We do that then by intelligently unifying that data so they know where it is, they can govern it. And finally, then they can confidently predict the next best action, right? Through visualizations, AI and ML that are embedded in that and leverage streaming data. What we do that really is give any organization data sovereignty because that data is going to be in right one cloud, on-premise somewhere else, in another cloud, in another SaaS application. And we are right unique in our ability without any care about which cloud or that is to help them harness the power of that data to make those faster, smarter decisions. That means we partner, right? Let's come back to the ecosystem. So, you know, Azure, uh, Google Cloud and AWS are all great partners of ours and we support them, right? You know, by being able to run uh, on them and move data from them. Um, And we also wanna make sure that our customer has us focused on that maniacally. So we have not a customer success organization, not a pre-sales organization. We have a customer excellence organization uh, led by a great leader, Jeff Hess, whose whole job is to make sure that when we're talking to a customer, whether they're an existing customer or prospect, what we show them um, with our sales consulting team and you know, as we develop a solution to their problem is exactly what we help them implement, exactly how we help them get the value from that. And I learned a lot of that you know, from Mark. I think last season, uh, Hillary Coplow-McAdams talked about it. You know, but it, to me, it goes well beyond just customer success. You know, at Tibco, if we're going to help you have, you know, the power of real-time data, we have to be excellent in everything we do and how we interact with you. I want to actually focus on one of the words that you used. As I've talked to you, uh, we've known each other for many years now, but, but there's a word that comes up again and again. It's the word of duty. 
And I'd love maybe to spend a few minutes, have you define what duty is, and then talk a little bit about why that's such an important part of who you are. Sure. Well, you know, I went to uh, the United States Military Academy, which the, you know, the motto is duty, honor, and country. And duty is a concept all around service. And when you're called to serve, right, what you're called to do, which is above and beyond you, um, you know, honor and country, obviously kind of self-explanatory. And, you know, really that is embedded deep within me from early stages. Uh, I did not come from a military background, uh, but my mother and my father both exemplified duty and obligation and service and everything they did. Uh, my father ran uh, a small sales and distribution business. So sales was absolutely in, in our life. But he was also a county commissioner and a local, you know, government official for many years. And that's really what I gravitated towards far more, right, in thinking I would actually go into sales and marketing. And my mom uh, was involved in just about every activity you could imagine. Our dinners were almost always a casserole or a crock pot because mom was typically in a meeting and would come back in time for dinner. I think in the PTA, she held every position other than the principal. And then our church, uh, she held every position other than the pastor. So I clearly saw that example um, from them and in other people in my community. I, you know, my parents really formed a great foundation. I have to give a shout out to a high school wrestling coach, a man named Kevin Carpenter, who also helped instill right all those aspects of here's your duty as an individual. Here's the role you play in a team. And here's how you hold yourself to standards. And so, you know, that combination of right having parents that exemplified it and having great mentors like Coach Carpenter uh, really helped make me into the person I think I am today. And, you know, I wasn't aware of it at all as, as it's happening, clearly. So you knew from a relatively early age that military service would be part of your life. What attracted you to the military? Well, I probably didn't know at an early age. I did, you know, love all aspects of that. And, you know, like like all, you know, young kids, I had toy soldiers and had a few family members, um, one of whom had, you know, gone to the military academy. But it wasn't until my sophomore year in high school, we went to West Point and it was a Friday afternoon and the entire Corps of Cadets was out in uniform running, not in formation, not the things you typically see. They're all just out exercising. And I thought, what a great place that on Friday afternoon, everybody is out, you know, and it was a beautiful day in April. Justin, what I didn't know is Friday is the only free time they have the entire week. Um, that April day happened to be like the warmest day of the year because West Point is generally a pretty cold place. And the physical fitness test was just two weeks away. So they weren't exercising of their own volition. They were actually out stressing because they were going to fail the physical fitness test. So what I really learned there was the power of due diligence and asking questions. And I did not ask enough questions uh, before arriving to West Point. But uh, I did arrive to West Point. It was certainly not... Um, Everything I expected from the aspect of this is all glorious and warm and sunny, uh, but it's also a great experience to help forge that concept of right service and teamwork and integrity. So you get to West Point and you've got this preconceived notion of what it's going to be like. How did the reality shape up versus what you're expecting? Well, so, you know, the, the I think there's two pieces. First, I talk about, you know, when I arrived, I thought um, I was going to be a lawyer, a military lawyer. Uh, as I said, my father was involved in politics. Uh, my mom knew that I loved to argue. And so she had just implanted that I was going to be a lawyer. Uh, and I arrived at West Point and realized it was way more about, you know, the team and what the team does than what an individual does. And this is not to say lawyers aren't part of teams and don't lead practices, but Right. There's an area of expertise. This is area of how you bring lots of expertise to bear. And, you know, you also learn those things you don't know. 
Um, I was a Florida kid. So I show up again at West Point, not realizing quite how cold it could be. And we're in our first, uh, we're in formation, the first formation of the day. And this was before we were going to play the Air Force Academy. And for those that follow, there's lots of rivalries between the academies. The Army Navy is clearly a big one, but Army Air Force is a big one too. And before the Army Air Force game on, I think it was a Thursday afternoon, they scramble some jets. And I'm sure they're getting training in and it's not you know just to do that, but they fly really close over the top of West Point early in the morning. And while they're doing that, this is about this time of year, November, this white stuff is falling from the sky. And I, uh, I, I mumbled because we're not allowed to talk in formation to my roommate who was from California. I said, what is that? And he used an adjective that, you know, I won't repeat here. It starts with an F. And he said, that's blanking snow, you idiot. And now we get caught, you know, talking. And so now we're doing push-ups. and I'm doing push-ups, which is generally a miserable thing. You don't like to be doing push-ups, but I got to watch this thing. I'd never seen fall from the sky, fall to the ground and melt in the asphalt. I was like, what a cool experience this is. So the one thing you learn is in every challenging, hard experience, there's some silver lining if you look hard enough. And so where I wouldn't have been able to maybe get to experience that because I'd never seen that in Florida, uh, I got to see it up close and personal because I was being punished. So it all kind of comes together in the end. One thing I want to point out, West Point is known for its academic excellence, but that's not the full story. There's a lot of other things that are emphasized in terms of helping to form um, the people that attend there. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's a, it's a really great point. Uh, so, you know, West Point has the whole person concept for certain. Uh, as a matter of fact, when you're ranked in your class, um, only about two thirds of that at the time I was there was your academics. Uh, and the other uh, third was a split between your military performance as a leader and your athletic performance, because that's what it's going to go do. And I took a lot of, away from that, from the aspect of, Life is so much more about just the knowledge. The knowledge is really critically important, but applying that knowledge is, is also important. And again, there are lots of organizations and places. I won't, don't want to talk about West Point as the only place that does that, but it really does you know, make a great foundation for anyone who wants to step out and lead or make changes. I shifted from uh, deciding to be a lawyer to deciding to be an infantry officer. So uh, infantry officers are essentially the the tip of the spear, if you will, they call them the queen of battle. Uh, and I liked it because it presented the most challenge and also presented the toughest leadership challenge. There's certainly a lot of parallels to sales and marketing. And uh, we've all probably seen the you can't handle the truth, you know, aspects of that. Uh, but I also think it taught you a lot more about how to leverage the broader team, right, than just be at the front all the time. Yeah, I actually wanted to touch on that. A lot of times in business, you hear people use military battle metaphors as one who has actually been deployed and seen combat, how do you feel about that? And what, what's your reaction? Well, so, so first, I want to be clear. It's a natural aspect of it, right? It's a team bringing a lot of skills together. Uh, there's a, a lot of aspects around the strategy, going back to Sun Tzu, right? That absolutely form the foundation of what any organization does, particularly any organization that's in a competitive environment. But but I do bristle a little bit, right, about we're in the foxhole or those aspects and only because I think that, and I'm super grateful for my classmates and those who have right, devoted their career. Some of my classmates are now right in their 30 plus year of service. And that is a very unique calling with, with tremendous responsibilities on them and tremendous risks. And so I always worry we kind of minimize that when we use too many of those military metaphors. 
Uh, but there's many of the aspects apply. So I clearly think the strategy, the operations, the tactics, you know, the, the battle drills, if you will, are all important. But I don't like to talk about us going to war, right, with our opponents or being in the trenches because, you know, there literally are people right now, right, in combat on our behalf. And, you know, we're grateful for them and don't want to diminish that at all. So I definitely want to be sensitive to that in this discussion and, and not try to draw those parallels. That said, and as you pointed out, there are some lessons learned um, that are that are taught by the military, military service that can apply in the private sector. You and I the other day were talking about battle drills and this idea of, of preparing for what is inherently a moment of chaos and ambush and, and training for that. Can you talk a little bit about what a battle drill is and maybe some parallels between that and lessons that can be taken across to sales? The battle drill is something you essentially learn at the smallest level of collaboration, right, in a unit. So typically, you know, you start at this squad or fire team level. And we talk about ambush, right? There is a battle drill, react to an ambush, right? So the first thing you do, you know, drop to the ground, immediately locate the source of the fire and start returning fire. Like that's just boom, 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 and the things you do. And that's driven into your into your psyche by practicing it. And by doing it and this whole idea, you know, in, in anything we do in life, you know, the 10,000 efforts is what happens. And probably, you know, in training, I was ambushed in different ways, you know, 10,000 times. And you learn that first aspect of the battle drill and then improvise from there. Fortunately, in real life, I was only, you know, ambushed a few times. And uh, the things you learn from training and from building and from gathering the data really expand. And I'll go up to the next level, which is the other thing I learned is, in my first unit, when we did a lot of battle drills, when I was a, a lieutenant leading paratroopers, we had a commander, John Abizade. John Abizade is now uh, the ambassador to Saudi Arabia. So you can imagine the, the type of things he's wrestling with. And at one point I was on his staff and we would, we would do plans, operation plans. And we would work, you know, three days straight, you know, very hours, very few hours of sleep to then develop a plan and give it to General Ab, at that time, Colonel Abizade. Um, and then we'd be ready to go execute. We're going to go load the planes and jump. And at the last minute, because this is training, he would change the plan and completely have us improvise and revise. And we would pull our hair out. We say, we never got a chance to execute that plan to see if it would work. And, and I would drive me crazy. And then he came back to this, you know, at the end and said, look, plans are useless. It's the planning that's essential. And that's a quote, quote, of course, from General Eisenhower and many other generals. So that I learned that aspect as well, right? The battle drill gives you the fundamental things that how you react. But then this idea and this concept of scenario planning and planning for every outcome um, is something clearly you do in sales and marketing, right? You do A-B testing, you do those things. And clearly you do it in sales. You have a battle drill when a customer asks a question, but you learn the most from asking them questions. And so that's how you execute. So it's there's lots of little things you learn that are good metaphors. And I'm sure, right, there's lots of first responders that can click off the exact same things that they learn and they could apply. But it's just great to pull those kind of nuggets into your everyday life as well. So day one at West Point, this idea of leadership, what real leadership is all about, was drilled into you. You shared a great example. Were there other individuals with whom you worked that were, in your mind, great leaders that you sought to emulate later in your life? Yeah. So, you know, you basically, you know, my roommate, my roommate, Joe Riccardi is now right. A general officer. Um, you know, my roommate, Dave Bear just retired as a colonel. So you see great examples of leadership all around you every day, which is the best part of that. And you're in a laboratory right around developing it. 
But we also had a great leader in the person that was essentially our counselor. So every company of 120 cadets has a tactical officer. Um, and your tactical officer is a captain typically, in the, in the, usually from the Army. And right, they meet with you and give you feedback on your performance you know, on a uh, weekly, if not monthly basis. And, you know, Captain Champagne, my tactical officer pulled me aside one time and said, you know, Dan, um, I observe you a lot. And when you make decisions, you're almost always right. And that's a problem. And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, I'm always right. Because you know, I'm thoughtful. I like to think through the thing is because you don't pause to take the feedback of others around you quickly enough. Right. And I'm a 19 year old. You're all kind of set and think your, your ways. And it was one of the most profound things someone gave me, which is this idea of even if you're right 95% of the time, right, that other 5%, right, is the the gap is filled by someone on your team. And it's going to be better filled by someone on your team if they're bringing a diverse or different insight, right, and a different background. So it was a really profound aspect of how do you continue to develop yourself? You get examples from your friends around you. Uh, you get feedback from, you know, coaches. And that's how you continue to, you know, not to use military analogy, sharpen the sword, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, there's something marvelous about throwing a 19-year-old into a situation where they're a leader among peers. Um, I, I had uh, an experience where I was in church service for two years, but in a parallel path, I was I was a leader among my peers. And I got some similar feedback in terms of here's where you're messing up. And it was very blunt. And it's kind of the first time in my life I'd heard that direct feedback at a moment in time when I was trying so hard to do well. But what it created in me is, is a, a self-awareness that I didn't have before. Honestly, I'm, I'm still working on that. But a level of self-awareness that brought a level of humility I didn't have before that then led to strength that I didn't have before. And being able to have experiences like that when you're young, I think really sets a tone for you for the rest of your life. Yeah, I remember you were in Chile and, you know, and, and so again, I think there's so many positive aspects to that story as well, which is you put yourself in an uncomfortable situation, right? You got out of your comfort zone. Um, you were doing something where you thought you'd been well-trained to do, right? You go through training and the development and, and aspect of it, and you still find you can't possibly be prepared for everything, right? Which is our condition in life. <laughs> the, the more you learn and take on that feedback, right? The better you get. And I think, you know, we're talking about sales and marketing. It's the same thing here. I love listening, right, to this podcast because I learn from people like John McMahon, right, whose methodologies I followed. I learned from Hillary, hearing Hillary Kaplan McAdams, right, talk and John Thompson. So, like, you can always gather something that helps you get a little bit better. And uh, I think that's the most powerful thing we do in any organization we're in, but particularly in sales and marketing because it's so dynamic and it's changing all the time. You were very involved with with veterans, helping veterans transition back into the private sector. What do we need to understand about veterans in terms of the strengths that they bring and also in terms of the kind of support that they need to really be successful and thrive? Yeah, so thank you for highlighting that. Uh, you know, so uh, one aspect of my background is uh, when I left active duty and, you know, we went to business school together. I thought, you know, I'd kind of made that transition, but I remained in what's called the individual ready reserve as a major. My last rank I achieved on active duty and, you know, assume that was that. And, and this was 1998, relatively peaceful, peace dividend. Obviously in 2001, much of that changed. And in 2008, I was actually called up and I returned back to active duty and I spent a year in Baghdad. And 
my first transition, right, was hard. I missed the camaraderie, you know, but you quickly find that in the civilian sector and you find companies that align to your values. So to kind of stop my career midstream and go back on active duty was pretty disruptive. But it really is ne- nearly as disrupted to me as right some of the you know young soldiers and young officers that I got to serve with. You know, the security leader, I, I was on the general staff, I was a strategist because of my background in strategy and technology and economics. But you know, Sergeant Goff, um, our security leader, he was on his third deployment, right, in five years. Uh, and was not going to be able necessarily to sustain that, right? Because it's a lot on his family and a lot on another person. So I recognized, right, this aspect of returning back to the civilian world for me was hard enough. And I'd already had, you know, eight years of experience in it. To give transitioning veterans that capability was something I thought was first and foremost a way to pay back to them. So I, at Salesforce, I started the organization with several other great folks called VetForce. It's now Salesforce Military and doing really great things. And I'm very proud of that organization, what they've done. VetForce remains their employee resource group internally. And I've gotten involved in a lot of organizations uh, like Breakline, which does tremendous job providing education. Vets in Tech, um, which provides technical skills to transitioning veterans. And at first I thought of this is our obligation to them, but I became much more aware of the service we were providing to our nation and our companies. Because when a company builds just a little bit of a bridge and takes the time to understand how a veteran's experience can help them, um, it's really powerful for that organization. And so with Vets in Tech, for example, they started a mentoring program. We are the first company to provide mentors to that organization. And yes, we're helping those veterans transitioning, but we're also helping our team members. And so I really believe, right, hiring veterans is smart and good business. Uh, And for all those reasons, they're, you know, leadership inclined. They're most likely very internationally aware. They've been deployed and they're like me in Iraq. I worked with, you know, people from 100 different countries, right, in that operating environment. Uh, And most importantly, they understand the value of teamwork and understand of duty and putting right that organization first. Not that they're not out, right, to do the best things for their indiv- for them as individuals, but they recognize that when the organization grows, they grow. So that's how I've kind of gotten involved. I first thought of it as my obligation to people like Sergeant Goff. Um, but in the end, I realized it's it's a greater thing we do for, for our country, but for organizations around the world to embrace that and make sure that transition is as smooth as possible. Um, and, you know, you do it by both ways. Help the veterans develop the skills and the language and help the companies right, build the skills and the ability to reach out to them. So let's jump into your uh, your your career in civilian life. Uh, one of the first companies where you worked was Siebel. Many people today think of CRM and Salesforce as synonymous, but really Siebel was the first out of the gate. And Tom Siebel, the man behind the company, name is on the company. You had an opportunity to work with Tom. Tell me a little bit about your interactions with Tom and what you learned from him. I love how you're leading to, right, you know, when when sometimes you had a dispute or a disagreement with Tom, he would take you to the window and point at the building across the way and say, whose name is on that building? Uh, so he would absolutely make it clear, right? And he built a phenomenal company. It was great. I, uh, I first met Tom. Um, I actually thought I was out of business school, um, was going to go be a consultant, and I was coming out of the Army. Uh, and had gotten an offer from McKinsey and was visiting the San Francisco office. And one of my West Point classmates who was at Siebel said, you have to come meet Tom. So I met Tom and 
basically he said, Dan, I get what you're going to do at McKinsey. You're going to be a smart guy. You're going to solve problems. And that's great. And, you know, they're phenomenal at that. But you came from the military. You're going to come and then go work with businesses. So just remember, you're always going to be a virgin telling people how to have sex. And uh, I thought, you know, I can I can understand that analogy. And so I did. Tom was very to the point. <laughs> Tom got to the point very quickly, <laughs> as Tom can do. And I really enjoyed, you know, working with Tom. As you said, he coined the term CRM. I wrote the first book about it. Mark went on and, you know, used that as a ticker symbol, I think, on purpose. Uh, and they'd worked together at, at Oracle, clearly. The biggest thing I learned from Tom, obviously, is, right, very clear focus on your mission, but more importantly, very close alignment with your customers. You remember all of our, and so, yeah, those of us that know, we work together, all of our conference rooms were named after customers, um, right? We went to meetings and we went to the office in suits and ties because we knew our customers were depending on us to deliver enterprise scale technology to them right out of the gate. Uh, you know, clearly model shifted, you know, there's aspect to the economy, but Tom built, I think, you know, a tremendous legacy of folks, you know, people like you and me who've gone out and taken a lot of those things we learned and built on them to do some amazing things. You know, I did get a chance to get exposed to Salesforce early on. Uh, maybe that's a story for another time, but I really believe that Tom did create a foundation that companies everywhere still benefit from, but he did it by thinking about focusing on the customer. And that's the thing I learned the most. There was a maniacal focus on the customer. There was a level of respect for the customer. One of my first jobs as well. And it really instilled in me the fact that at the end of the day, we're here because of customers. We're here to serve customers. Uh, the other thing I remember about Siebel, Tom was maniacal about training. You needed to understand the products that you represented, whether you were in marketing or sales. And he, he implemented a training program where you could get points for every course that you took. And those points would monetize directly into prizes you could get. Literally, Dan, I was on track to win the trip to Bali. And I think, I think when he rolled this out, the entire company shut down while everybody was training. And Siebel realized the liability they had on their hands. So they turned the program off just before I got to the Bali level. So to this day, I have a set of Cuse cookware. I have, I think they had a Waterford vase you could get that had Siebel etched on the side. My my wife had a like a Chanel. I don't even remember what you know luxury brand, but it had Siebel stamped across it. So it's like it wasn't quite the same romantic gift I thought it would be. Um, but it was a phenomenal investment in training. And uh, look, and it made a point. Right, we all did. We we got like a hundred points per class, and it pretty much almost translated to a dollar per point. So yeah, I mean, I'd go home at night, um, put the kids to bed, and take classes. And it was really good. And, and it was. And your wife would ask if you did your classes for the day. Like my wife was invested in my training. <laughs> <laughs> we have to go to Bali. We had, I mean, for many years, this big monster TV that came from that program. So, yes, I remember it well. So you were at Siebel. You eventually made your way to Salesforce, but that was almost a decade after you left Siebel. Uh, I would have thought that maybe you would have made the leap a little bit sooner. What, what was the story there? Uh, so it was a, it, you know, look, there was a, clearly a time where Mark was launching Salesforce and it, and it was definitely very exciting. Um, but I was part of a team that was focused on you know, competing against them and launching sales.com. And I'd been to an offsite around that very recently, a very select number of us with Tom. And um, I didn't have any contractual, you know, clearly I couldn't expose that information, but you know, you know what stays between your ears. Uh, and I just felt that that was not right, the right time for me to make a move like that. Um, it, it just, you know, 
the, the aspect of my personal integrity of what I committed to do. I committed to go help this team. I, I couldn't make that change. Um, as you recall, we did have a person kind of on that team who didn't feel the same way and it worked out well for them monetarily. Uh, but I think that stuck with, with Mark and with Tom because both of them hired me later on in my career. I went on to go work with actually the partner that I worked with at McKinsey, eventually found my way back after deploying, working with Tom at C3. Mark and team still remembered that exchange back from 2001. So I joined uh, Salesforce in 2011, just as Mark was really launching right, the enterprise go-to-market team. We'd done a really good job starting with you know, our small, medium business, uh, driving an innovative approach. It wasn't even called SaaS at the time. Um, but then right to take it to the next level, Mark is always great about recognizing when he's going to, you know, adjust the team. So I joined Salesforce um, and, and Mark remembered kind of my integrity from that earlier time. And it's been uh, it was a really great opportunity to work with them. And I think we did a, a lot of great things to adjust our go to market right to a different phase of Salesforce's growth. And many people don't recall, like a lot of folks, I think even you right kind of counted Salesforce out. You said it would hit a wall. Mm-hmm. And um, Mark recognized that was very likely to happen. And, you know, someone could out Salesforce, Salesforce, but he figured out how to build the right go to market model, the right skill sets and, you know, absolutely the right training. Just like Tom had us go through three weeks of training, we went through training at Salesforce. And uh, both of those kind of gave me that, that, that key insight into in any sales marketing organization, enablement's critical and the data around your enablement's even more critical. You brought up the rivalry between Siebel and Salesforce, and in the early 2000s, it was it was ferocious. I remember Benioff took out a full-page, front-page ad in USA Today, a kid at a whiteboard saying, I will not let Siebel steal my lunch. It was actually a chalkboard. I'm dating myself. but And I remember the meeting that you're referring to, where this all of the strategy was coming together. There were a couple key people in that meeting. There was a lot of sensitive information that was being shared. Many, many years later, I respect the fact that you made the decision that you made. I think about moments of integrity, wonderful example. And it reminds me of a quotation from Gary Vaynerchuk, who said, the truth always wins. The truth always wins. And I I think that maybe in the short term, you feel like uh, things didn't turn out the way you hoped. But in the long term, if you look at the long arc, integrity and, and truth, I think are always backing you up. Yeah, so I think that's you know a really good observation. And again, I I, I guess I thought of it that way. Um, it just just me was just the way I was raised. And uh, and again, not, there was nothing legal or contractual. It was just around right the spirit of what I committed to do. And so first and foremost, uh, integrity is the one thing that carries with you forever, and that's what people are going to recognize. I tell that you know as I do a lot of speaking to uh, veterans who are making the transition, and most I speak to those who want to come into technology. And I said, I know you want to come work in IT, um, but for me, the most important I and T you're bringing are integrity and teamwork, what you learn in service, and that's going to serve you throughout. Yes, you'll see people who shortcut on either of those and get ahead faster than you at certain points. But yeah, the long arc is right. Truth and love and, and respect for one another, you know, win out. And um, I think that's a, a good life lesson you kind of pick from stories like that, I guess. So when you got to Salesforce, you ran alliances, you ran channels. In many respects, that's what made Salesforce the company that it is today. 
What did you learn while you were there about the importance of that function? To me, it's it's almost like this whole aspect we just talked about a, a little bit, speaking to um, you know diversity of insights, and in that you as one organization are never going to have a monopoly on knowledge. You might be right ninety five percent of the time, but right unless you build that network and that ecosystem of other skills, capabilities, and insights, you never break through. And, you know, and, and Tom did a great job right, at Siebel building alliances, including right, the one with Anderson, which came Accenture. Um, and, you know, Mark used that model. Pretty much Mark followed a lot of the things Tom did and just built it on a SaaS platform and recognize that when you get into that level of enterprise, you can't possibly deliver or understand everything your customer needs. Um, I do that day in, day out at Tibco. I mean, we talk about how we are better together, you know, every day. There's that, the, the saying, right, is, um, you know, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And uh, Mark figured out that to go far, he needed to build that ecosystem and he, and he built a very strong one. Now, what I also love about technology is you can break that paradigm, embrace the magic of and and go further together and faster together if you use technology. Simplest technology around is would be a, a rowing shell, a cruise shell, right? You put four people into a cruise shell with that technology and if they're synchronized, they'll go faster and further than any individual. So, you know, technology breaks that paradigm of that, you know, ancient story for us and says we really have an obligation. And, and, and it's crazy not to be working together across the spectrum of your ecosystem, you know, and, 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 and foster that every chance you get. As companies are thinking about setting up their alliances and channel strategy, what are some of the unconventional things that Salesforce did to really take that whole thing to the new level? Well, there's a, you know, a couple of key things that we did is first, we just made it part of the mantra. Like we just said, you know, we would put metrics around working with partners, right? We had goals around what partners would influence and what partners were source. One word that I think, you know, Mark didn't use much, which I really embrace is talking about partners like a channel. A channel is a degree of a kind of an old school aspect of, right? What's, you know, look in the dictionary, one definition of a channel, it's something I dig in the ground so that water or fluids can flow through and nobody has to touch it. And that's not what modern partnerships are about. Modern partnerships are on collaboration and growing and getting better. So I, I really think that right, that key lesson learned is thinking about all of that as a partnership, measuring metrics that right, align to both of those. So it's not just what's sold through or not just what's led, but it's also what's influenced and driven. And, uh, you know, with with the right tools, you can you can use that data in the end at Tipco. That's what we're about. Right. Using real time data to make faster, smarter decisions. And right. You know, whether that's your CRM system or your production system, the more data you can gather from outside your walls, the better off you're going to be. You know, there's a great story about Zuckerberg. He wanted to get the company to shift and have a, a assume a mobile mindset. You put the memo out. Everybody read it. And then it was business as usual. And so then he paused and he said, I'm not going to meet with anybody for two weeks. And then the next time we meet, you're not allowed to show me anything unless it's in a mobile form factor. And that completely changed the mindset of the company. I bring that up because at Salesforce, I understand there was such a deeply seated belief in partners that you couldn't introduce functionality until you exposed it through an API as well, so that partners could also have the opportunity to access that. It's another example of a gesture that says a thousand words. Yeah, you're exactly right. You 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 know you can say something, and, and that's important because right you have to say that and believe it. 
but then it's the fundamental actions you take, right. Which reflect that. And, you know, cause there's not an organization in the world. It's not going to talk about, you know, what they do to partner, but your actions and the standards you have to uphold really help, right. Make that resonate. And right. That comes all the way back to, you know, what I learned in uniform, right. That, you know, the leader doesn't always, there's a saying that is, you know, lead from the front. And, and I like that, but I actually think you set the example from the front and you lead from the middle, right? So you have to hold yourself. You have to do all those things like, like Mark Zuckerberg did that make it, but you then come back to the middle to like, right. Gather people's insights and perspectives. And uh, you know, you'll, you'll see examples of that over and over again in sales and marketing, which I love. So let's talk a little bit about BMC. BMC is known as a world-class sales organization heritage with McMahon. You ran sales and marketing at BMC, and that's where I think largely your philosophy about sales and marketing was formed. Can you break down the playbook that you developed there for building a successful sales organization? Sure, absolutely. So, so first, I'd say that you know, a great part is each step in uh, from Siebel to even Amdocs to to Salesforce help reinforce to me the importance of data, right, and moving data more and more importantly. Versus having, you know, systems of record, it's now systems of accessing data. And BMC was another example where, right, our focus was on helping large-scale enterprises access the most important things as quickly as they could, right? You know, they had to run their business and reinvent it at the same time. Uh, from a methodology standpoint, which, you know, we inherited from John, right, we had Medic, or as John still calls MedPick, right, with the decision process as the P part. And, and that was fundamentally the everything we did came back to that aspect right of you know why should they be buying anything why should they be buying it from us and why should they be buying it now and every aspect around the metrics the economic buyer the decision criteria and process all flowed from that and really built a world-class sales organization but you still want to learn right new tricks all the time so one of the things we did is right develop our high velocity inside sales organization right to help do that we right shifted to more business development um, reps we targeted our marketing and did way more a b testing because the things that work really great kind of you know for john and before john right you've got to continue to innovate so the biggest thing i learned there was thinking about how to constantly change the paradigm i was lucky to have the opportunity to run marketing and sales so you could really make the system work together um is you know i had a great chief marketing officer who reported to me you know, great sales leaders. And what you really think about is how this whole thing works as an engine, which is what I love about your show, right? Your show is the legends of sales and marketing because they absolutely work best when they're completely aligned in that same way. We all have individual goals, but if the marketing leaders are all just talking about leads and impressions, let's go back to the Conan O'Brien, right? If, you know, my chief marketing officer spiked the ball because we had a whole lot more traffic to the website that would miss the whole purpose, right? Their job is to help generate uh, leads that are effective for the sales organizations so they can pick them up. So the biggest thing I learned is while we had this great framework for qualification and medic, we still had to change our processes and we still had to change our organization. And we did it really every year. Step back, look at your strategy, look at the data you have, and then monitor, right? That new strategy you put in place with the data you have. You know, we at, at, at TIBCO use People AI. We've launched different aspects of our strategy. We've continued to make sure we have a tighter focus on customer excellence. And now we've got better data to support that. So it's, you know, that's the biggest lesson is nothing is constant other than maybe those principles of 
integrity, teamwork, and you know maybe resilience. Everything else, you got to be you got to be ready to shift on. As a leader that's run both sales and marketing together, what does it take to build an organization where those two functions are meshed? And what are the pitfalls that people should be trying to avoid there? So first, you know, we always fall into the trap of the org chart is the strategy and, and org charts, right? You can accomplish the same thing with lots of different organization charts. That's never the end all once you've got that, right? And there's, you know, McKinsey is great at the racy matrix. Am I, you know, what am I responsible for, accountable for? Um, the biggest thing you need to have, right, is agreement on what your most important metrics and goals are, agreement on your strategy to achieve those, then the organizational support and how you align to do that. So getting back to what are we focusing on and what are our core principles is the biggest, biggest thing you can do, no matter how it's organized. I did love, right, being able to do that kind of without having to bring the whole ELT together, right, you know, and, and drive those changes. But, right, coming back to what are our metrics? What's our strategy to achieve those metrics? And then how do we then organize to go operationally do that? That's the biggest principle I learned from watching that work. Now, what I also learned is look at your data every single day and figure out when it's not working and go make adjustments. And we do that, I think, very well here between TIBCO, right, our marketing organization, our customer excellence team and our sales team to make sure they're collaborating on the best possible experience for customers. I've heard you use the mantra, everything must interlock. From an organizational perspective, how do you achieve that interlock when you have a lot of functions, which, which candidly do very different things? Well, first it comes back to, right, the power of visualization. So, you know, with, with our own tools, Tibco Spotfire, uh, we have everything instrumented and dashboarded and it's updated in real time. So the beauty of being, right, an integration data management and analytics company is we have that perspective. Um, back to my military service, a, a great general I worked with uh, was General Stan McChrystal. And he runs the McChrystal Group now and does a lot of great consulting. And he talks about shared consciousness. And, you know, in when I was in Iraq with him, he was leading special operations forces. And if you can imagine any group more likely to go on to their own little, you know, mi not little mission, important mission and keep their information compartmentalized and not share it. Right. It's that community. And he did a phenomenal job of saying shared consciousness is our first objective. How do we become a team of teams? And so to me, that's what we drive to be as a team of teams here. But we do that first and foremost by drinking our own champagne and ensuring that right our own visualizations, our own analytics are at the heart of everything we do. Now, we also work with great partners who are better at certain analytics. So we're here right with the People AI team. You do a phenomenal job helping us make sure we are gathering data right from you know people's interactions that goes directly into right our CRM and enables us to analyze it in Spotfire. So you also have to recognize where you get past what your expertise is and bring in other experts like you and our partnership out in the market is great too. So I think it's it's wonderful when you get to be drinking your own champagne, you know, every single day. Well, let's talk a little bit about leading. How large is Tipco now in terms of number of employees? We're four, uh, roughly 4,000 team members. So 4,000. Actually, there's this great book I've always enjoyed. It's a series of books called Horatio Hornblower. Uh, it's it's about a an individual who starts off as a midshipman in the British Navy. 
And every book, he ascends the ranks until he becomes the admiral of the British Navy. But you get to go with him through all the mistakes he makes, all the lessons that he learns. And you see how his abilities evolve to the point where he can lead the entire British Navy. And you go back to those first books and the, and the lessons he learned there. But you're leading a massive organization now. How do you actually get thousands of people on the same page and pointed in the right direction? What are your personal tools to do that? So, you know, I, I think first and foremost comes back to identifying, right, you know, what's your core mission is, what's your why? So our why is we exist to help organizations around the world solve the most complex data challenges, right? So it starts with that. And if it's not focused on that, right, it may be something important we do, right? It may be a requirement, but it is not at the core. So you start off with our why is helping organizations solve the most complex data challenges. Those could be nonprofits. Uh, we helped, you know, City Harvest uh, in London during the peak of the pandemic, double the amount of food they provided, right, to, to food deprived communities. So, you know, that's using TIBCO, that's leaning in with our TIBCO for good exercise. But that comes back to, is this an organization that has a complex data challenge? Yes. Can we help them? Yes. So if that kind of helps everybody align to where you're getting to. And then we learn, you know, I learned a lot from Mark. Uh, Mark had the concept of the V2 mom, the vision, values, methods, obstacles, and measurements. Um, I'm a big fan of John Doerr's book, Measure What Matters. And so we've implemented OKRs. So we start off with three strategic objectives. You know, we move down uh, to objectives that support that. And then there are, you know, 27 key results that we track as an executive leadership team. Now, people say 27, that's a lot. But right, that's an ELT can handle that. Now we share every quarter, um, roughly half of those, 13 of those um, with the whole team. And we show them where we're doing and moving to those metrics. Some are tactical, right? And they're important for this year. Some are more strategic and they set us up for success. But it all comes back to, we're solving the most complex data challenges. That means we have to have customer excellence, market leadership with the products that matter right? And operational excellence. And then all our OKRs stem from that and get people aligned. Now, like things change, right? We set up this year's plan before COVID. So then you have to come back and say, all right, we're solving the world's most complex data challenges. What are our priorities underneath that? And so for us, first and foremost, it was the safety and welfare of our team members. Uh, second, it was success of our customers. And third, it was the welfare of our communities. So we used um, basically TIBCO Spotfire to publish a COVID-19 dashboard. And it's still now up today. So you can see things like the effective retransmission rates down to the county level in the United States and that equivalent globally. You can see uh, hospital um, hospital uh, vacancy rates. So all that data is available publicly because that was a way for us first and foremost to solve a complex data challenge, make sure our team members right knew what was going on in their community, but also to support our customers. Then we you know went and launched a few key products. So we use the TIBCO uh, cloud platform, our connected intelligence platform, and we launched a tool called GatherSmart. So GatherSmart is a you know, phone application as well as a control dashboard that organizations can use to symptom track and decide if that person can come to the office that day. And if they get capacity in an office to shut that office down. We did that in six weeks. And so it does the power clearly of our technology, but it also came back to, this is solving a complex data challenge. Um, and it's making sure our customers can continue to operate. So when you do that, it's amazing what people can kind of quickly align to do, much of it on their own accord, right? I didn't sit every day and for six weeks direct what was going to launch and gather smart. 
but we have now an application up and running at places like Dartmouth um, that's helping their students go to campus safely. And it's just a pure testament to alignment around what our purpose, our why is, and then alignment to what our technology is and what it can do. Dan, you did a couple things there and the the marketer and me, the, the synapses are firing. And I want to just point that out. Uh, brilliant. Number one, you had a very simple mission that you were able to just rattle off off the top of your head. Number two, when I asked for your elevator pitch, very simple, plain language. You then were able to break it down into gathering the data, consolidating the data and, and taking the next best action. It just rolled off of your tongue. But as a marketer, I know how hard it is to get the message to that point. And I want to commend you and uh, your marketing team for for the work that it took for you to just say those simple sentences there. Well, you know, the best part about it is, is you first and foremost have to be authentic, right? You have to step back and say, what is it we're doing well and what do we need to do? Um, I think it was uh, when you had John Thompson on at Semantic, right? Like, he kind of made the shift because, he, you know, when he inherited Semantic, he had a lot of things. And he said, look, we're, we're only going to do security. And right, that helped them make a lot of strategic decisions around parts of the business they spun out. And then right when um, 9-11 happened and there's a big focus on hacking and shortly after 9-11, there was the first self-propagating virus. He was perfectly aligned because he told everybody that's what we're going to do. And so for us, it's great in that, look, more things are connected today than were yesterday. And as a result, there'll be far more data available tomorrow than was yesterday. And absolutely nothing tomorrow will go slower than it did today. So that's a great spot to be in when what you do is give organizations data sovereignty, right? And control over that data. So it's a lot of fun, um, but it's uh, also a challenge to make sure you always come back to what's your, you know, your core mission, what you want to be doing. Well, Dan, the time has flown by. We got time for one more question. As you're to look back over your career and in your life, if you were to boil it down to one thing, what would you say has made the most difference? Uh, I, I love this question, and I and I heard many of your previous people talk about it. And, and I love Hillary Coplamic Adams, which is you know life is a numbers game, right? Keep taking chances and keep taking swings. Um, and I think that's great. And it comes back to this idea of grit and persistence and integrity. I mean, I grit and persistence, right? But what I think it comes back to for me, the, the key lesson that I would apply is, and it's this lesson we talked about early on in my civilian career, integrity and teamwork will carry you through. If you stay true to who you are and you do what you say you're going to do, and you combine that with an understanding that, right, the best things are accomplished when you're working as a team, nothing's impossible and your life will always be more fulfilling and more fulfilled. Uh, and look, I can have integrity and be very clear that I'm not going to be a team player. And there's people out there that are successful doing that. Um, but for me, right, combining those two things and then staying resilient, understanding that numbers game um, is, is the key to happiness in both our professional lives and our personal life. Uh, I have a lot of other interests right outside of this, including athletics. But, you know, my family and my extended family, um, those same principles apply. If I can have integrity with them and I can work together to solve problems, you know, whether we disagree or otherwise, right? everything works out uh, as best as it possibly can. And whether you're doing push-ups in the snow or running when you didn't think you're going to be running, there's always a silver lining somewhere to find. Dan, great thoughts. Thanks so much. Hey, it was a real pleasure, Justin. So great. And uh, thanks again for all you guys' support from People AI.
This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams' inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.